white flag. But now we're back for another assault on your ears. This is Lower Dorks, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. Tonight, we're welcoming back Thomas Maroney, lead starship designer for Star Trek Online and starship designer extraordinaire, as we talk about the starships of season two. So tell me, boys, what are we drinking tonight? Uh, well, welcome back, Thomas, by the way. It's great to have you back. Uh, we're going to talk everything ships. Really exciting. Excited to, to be back. We've got a lot of juicy stuff to talk about. I, I want to mention that we started talking about a bunch of stuff, you know, before we started recording. I was like, wait, it's true. We, we, we should just save it for the show because there's some there's some deep dives ahead, my friends. So I'm ready. ready. But actually, at your request, we are drinking a uh, Sex on the Beaches. Uh, I guess that's how you call it. Plural, a plural version of a drink. Um, but yes, yeah, so we are, we are drinking that. Sexes on the beach. One of those. Sexes uh, on the beaches. <laughs> Wait, is it sexes it on those beaches? <laughs> this is terrible. We're already going way off the rails. <laughs> but uh, we are doing this because there is a certain room that on a certain hero ship in season two that is makes it very relevant because there are beaches and or water and or marine mammals around but we're gonna get to that later but yes sex is on the beaches or some variant thereof is what we're drinking is that why we're doing this <laughs> yeah didn't you know now you do <laughs> that, that that's why i justified it <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense if you think just don't think about it too hard i guess don't think about anything Star Trek too hard. Yeah, it's it's true. So where are we starting here? Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on this season. Yes. So I've I've drawn up a list that we can go through in the order of the episodes being aired. So there are a lot of ships in season two. Some of them have reappeared. They're existing canon ships, or they're ships that uh, that we've seen in season one of Lower Decks. I've tried to focus a lot on the the newer ships, the exciting uh, redesigns and completely new designs. Um, so that's what we're going to go through in the order in which we see them. So let's jump right in, actually. The first episode, Strange Energies, we see a lot of ships even in the intro holodeck sequence. I, I'm thinking specifically of the shot where Mariner, you know, hijacks the Miranda variant ship and is kind of blasting her way out. And you see these like brief shots of tons of different ships. It's like the, the you know, the, the showmakers just threw in every single ship they could think of. <laughs> A lot of them are existing canon ships. Like Aaron, you mentioned there's Jemadar ships in here. There's Hideki Cardassian ships, Galores, lots of Delta Flyers, which for some reason in season two there are just tons of delta flyers everywhere delta because... flyers everywhere it's like somebody <laughs> on the uh production staff is all like i need more delta flyers <laughs> <laughs> somebody really loved them i mean you can't say no to the to really big shuttles i guess so let's talk about the updated miranda first just because that's the one that uh, mariner escapes on as far as like the visual differences there are some but they are few they seem to mainly exactly you know canon mirandas we've seen in other places unless you guys have picked out any of the differences yeah i don't know if you've ever seen a, a live action version of the miranda where the front of the nacelles are red yes yeah, I think you maybe saw some version of Constellation do that, at least in like promo, like trading cards and stuff. I don't know if it actually ever, mm. if the, the, the Buster Collectors on the Constellation ever glowed in the show. And I'm pretty sure we've never seen them do that for the Miranda. So that's new. And it's an interesting point. I'm looking at it now that the sides uh, are still the copper color that are implied in the in the movies. But the the little little strips in the front are, are you know, bright red now, which is kind of cool. I guess spoiler alert this is also a holodeck recreation so who knows that's like, true how much oh my uh... god why did you say that i haven't watched the episode yet <laughs> <laughs> oh, ruining it 
I know. <laughs> I mean, I only say that to say how much you know. Who knows how much Mariner is uh is tweaking things for the rule of cool <laughs> and all that. She's making her workout program, and she's like, "I know what I'll do. I'll make the Miranda's nacelles red." <laughs> I mean, she's she is a person of strong opinions in general. <laughs> That's so, true. You know, like I feel like <laughs> if she has an opinion about something, and she has the ability to, you know, play God essentially, that she's gonna just uh, tweak reality. But I mean, I, I don't actually think that's what's going on for the record. But you know, I I do always think it's worth noting that whenever you're like watching a, something that's a simulation, that any sort of deviant from um, you know canon could be explained away that way <laughs> yes any author could have just come in and made that little edit that's mm -hmm. true well and of course star trek has a history of visual changes without explanations yeah. so that's true maybe this is just how it's supposed to look all along <laughs> <laughs> indeed also in this shot aaron you pulled a still that i didn't even see in the show when it aired even when i was doing my frame by frame analysis but it, it's this really interesting romulan looking ship with a very small head and the kind of giant wings um and this is what we were talking about right before we started recording i kind of said it you know it, was, it looked like a ship from star trek armada 3 which is that uh, sins of the solar empire mod the vengeance class but thomas you have some background knowledge where this came from mm -hmm. why don't you tell us about it yeah, so my guess here is that this is a a nod to the old tabletop role-playing game published by FASA Games. The, the FASA Star Trek role-playing game was set during the motion picture era, and it was released, I believe, in the 80s, mm. kind of before, even before TNG came out, or maybe right after or during early TNG. So, there, so Star Trek as a franchise was a lot smaller back then, right? You hadn't seen the Dideridex yeah. even. So every Romulan mm. ship that the FASA guys, they have a Romulan source book with all these Romulan ships they wanted to add to the role-playing game. And so they had to make up literally everything except the D7 and the well, Star Trek Online calls it the Talis, but in the original series, it's just simply called the Bird of Prey. Right. And so they, they they made a lot of these designs. And if you look at them, there, there are a few interesting things that are happening there. Obviously, some of them are very inspired by the, the original Bird of Prey from Balance of Terror. But a few, you'll notice, have the same kind of wing feathering and shapes of the other bird of prey from Star Trek 3. And that's because FASA was going off the right. original script of Star Trek 3, which, which was that the Klingons actually stole the bird of prey from the Romulans. Oh. So the bird of prey in Star Trek 3 was originally intended to be a Romulan design that the Klingons captured from a color and design perspective that actually makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. right right uh, in yeah. tng they actually retooled the uh, klingon aesthetic to be more in line with the bird of prey right yeah the vorcha first ship makes sense the first new Klingon ship that was designed for TNG, um, capital ship anyway, I think there might have been a shuttle before this, was the Vorchok-class battlecruiser. You can definitely see the Bird of Prey influences in that design. I mean, you can also see how the D7 influenced it as well. And that the Vorchok uh, cruiser was designed by Rick Sternbach. So so the fastest stuff um, is you see a lot of the Bird of Prey from Star Trek Three inspired in their ships. And it's, uh, it's interesting because you never, we've never seen canonically, we've never ever seen a Romulan ship from the 2280s uh, which is the movie era timeline right so starting in That's search right. for spock and then through star trek 6 that that goes basically from like 2283 to 2289 so we don't know what a romulan ship from that time frame looks like so this might actually be the first you know if that's their intent which it looks like it is to me this might be the first time we've seen a canonical example of that 
because if you look closely at that ship, you can kind of see its nacelles. <laughs> All that to say, this looks heavily inspired by the, the fastest ships from, from that era. And I don't I don't think it's a one-to-one, although there, there is one in there that it, it really does look close to, which is the um, Vengeance, I think you said, Stavros? Right. Yes, I think that's what it's called. And so, you know, I, I think they were probably throwing that in there as a, a nod to some of these older Star Trek ships, which is super cool uh, to have that little nugget there for, for old Star Trek fans. That was the interesting thing about FASA's design work, too was like they did a lot of stuff and some of it was really like cool evolutionary design aesthetic from what we had seen on screen and then other stuff was like you know hey let's take a tos enterprise and the miranda and let's glue them together and see what happens (laughs) right but like they did they did tons and tons of designs to really flesh out the various powers as an armada that exists it is a fleet it's not just 20 different versions of the constitution because that's all we can put on screen right (laughs) Uh, it's really just fascinating design work and it's too bad so much of that was lost to history it's nice to see some of it coming back yeah Speaking in that picture, though, you don't just see those. There's tons of other same basic concept. There's like what looks like a partial bird of prey. And that's something you saw in a lot of Vasa ship. It would take elements of a starship and like cut out and add to it to create new shapes. And I, you see a lot of that in that, for lack of a better word, spaceship hangar. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it's, it, what's really interesting about that hangar is the scale is is pretty wild here because you have... <laughs> You have the Miranda, which is, you know, 300-ish meters long in that ballpark, anywhere from like 280 to 4 or something. I don't know. Anyway, so it's it's a big, it's a capital ship, right? The Miranda is actually not a small ship. But behind it, like you can look at, you can see the Miranda in front of runabouts and Peregrine, you know, Federation attack fighters, (laughs) which are much, much, you know, like a runabout could easily fit inside the Miranda hangar bay. And yet behind it, it's somehow bigger. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely yeah. artistic license on Mariner's part. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe this is, the more I think about it, the more this has got to be just Mariner just going off the rails with the holiday. Because we've we've seen where, you know, Mike McMahon has been very aware of ship scaling. So this just seems to be kind of kind of crazy crazy you know that that whole scene is full of clues that this is not actually happening and it's all like an illusion of some variety (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then it was so that's probably just another clue that we should have picked (laughs) up on or i guess i did pick up (laughs) (laughs) i'm smart Uh, I want to call out, so there's the runabout and the Peregrine that we mentioned. There's also the Bajoran Interceptor in there, which is cool. Some, looks like, even the even the scales aren't consistent. Like, you can see a runabout that's, like, the right size, and then behind, you know, off in the distance, <laughs> there's another runabout that's, like, way like bigger. <laughs> yeah. And that's it, too, because, like, this scene isn't just one shot. There's, like, a brief tracking shot. There's a bunch of different cuts as Mariner's making her escape. And there's so much in every one of those shots. It's really just... Right. I could have spent hours taking screenshots, but this one that we're looking at, I think, was the most indicative of just how wild and weird that scene was. Yeah. Kind of yeah. crazy to think about the legalities of if this is close enough to a fastest ship, you know, who owns the rights to that? You know, it seems it opens a can of worms. Yeah. So it's interesting because that era, right before FASA got the license, maybe not quite right before, but before FASA had the license in the in the late 70s, there was a, a company called Amarillo Design. Design Bureau. Oh yeah, I remember Amarillo. Right, when they're still around, they're still doing stuff, and they landed the Star Trek license in perpetuity. What? But only 
for the original series stuff. <laughs> so they're still putting out officially licensed Star Trek games called, uh, I think, Star Trek Federation Commander. I mean, the, the biggest one they did, obviously, people are going to yell at me if I don't say that, mention this game, because <laughs> it, it, it's actually a landmark tabletop strategy game called Starfleet Battles. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. It's one of the most famous tabletop strategy games out there. And actually, um, I had a teacher, a high school history teacher, and he, he was in the Navy, and he told me, that they actually taught that game to officers in the Navy because <laughs> it was so involved. And like, cause you had to manage like a million things at once to, to command your ship and stuff <laughs> that it was a really good mental exercise for these people to learn how to command a ship. Right. Which I thought was really cool. I actually remember playing the old uh, DOS adaptation of that game. That was like a very watered down mm -hmm. version. So in the, in the nineties interplay made a computer game based on Starfleet battles called Starfleet command. And it was actually probably one of the better Star Trek strategy games out there. It was really good. It was 3D and you had, you know, you had shield facings. The combat, I guess, you could compare it to Star Trek Online, but I would say that Starfleet Command combat was actually more involved. There were less, there weren't really any special powers, but you could do things like beam over mines and like ram them with suicide shuttles. Was Amarillo the one that like they were all in on like assault shuttles and mm -hmm. like, like shuttles that would launch micro torpedoes and swarms and yeah yep. all sorts of, of really neat uh exploration of the star trek ip's technology yeah it was super cool and they had wild weasel like they're probably one of the only star trek properties that has really examined um electronic warfare in like a meaningful way i mean you could say that you know cloaking is essentially electronic warfare right but the uh, the starfleet battle stuff they really go hard into that and they they made up their own alien races and and so i definitely recommend checking out you can get on a good old games uh, starfleet command it's it's still uh, a lot of fun and if i remember correctly the uh amarillo uh, they were the ones who really fleshed out like the gorn as an empire mm -hmm. and the gorn had these like really cool ships that were like multiple saucers with like wings that were like weapon platforms and they had the vertical nacelle configuration yeah yeah they definitely had the the multiple saucers and i mean they had to flesh out everybody right it's the <laughs> same thing with what fasa did where it was just sort of like you saw like one klingon ship on screen in the original series and they just sort of had to blow it up from there <laughs> so they use a lot of the franz joseph stuff and i don't know if they like license the franz joseph designs from franz joseph's estate or or whatever but uh it's interesting there's some there's some weird legal stuff with the Franz Joseph designs because I, uh, a little bit of behind the scenes from, from Star Trek Online, we did an original series themed expansion several years ago for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which I guess would have been 2016. And we were going to add a lot of original series era ships to the game. And so the very first thing I did was I took that Franz Joseph book to our CBS licensing guy and I was like, hey, can we use these? Right. You know, these fans have like loved these designs for years and there's an expectation there right and he was like no sorry like Ugh. we don't we don't want people to we don't want these to be in new official stuff and i'm not sure why I, I don't know if there's some like some confusion over who owns those designs because back then paramount was so flippant with the license because like i said amarillo is still around and they're still making money on star trek i think their contract was essentially like they paid some some money once and uh <laughs> and never had to pay anything again so uh, or maybe they, they have a, a flat like a 5% royalty or something on those books. I don't know. But they're still doing it. They just can't uh, you know use anything from anything after TOS. They just can't use. Interesting.
Well, and I think uh, I think uh, much more protective of the IP now. And I think like now more than like even in my childhood, I remember the concept of like intellectual property protection and a brand as it extends to a particular entertainment property they, like it seems like they were a lot less protective back in the day mm -hmm. i think it's because you know we didn't have the mass communication so you know amarillo design bureau making a game out of amarillo texas and marketing it to a very niche market very unlikely to do any damage to the wider ip right now they produce some <laughs> uh, little weird stuff and suddenly you're on nationwide news right <laughs> that's true well, different universe well yeah and the, and, the, and again when they when they got that license star trek had been canceled after three years it was in syndication in certain markets but it was running at like 10 p.m 10 p.m at night you know like i don't think there had been a star trek convention yet or maybe there had been one like paramount didn't know that it was gonna be a franchise at all right. they just thought oh whatever these guys want to make a shitty board game we don't give a crap you know we want to <laughs> like yeah they want to pay us a little bit of money that's fine and then uh, we might as well make something out of this stupid star trek thing you know like <laughs> <laughs> i really think that was a mentality back when it happened and then then it blows up and becomes a worldwide uh juggernaut exactly exactly <laughs> well you know i hate to stop this uh deep dive but you know <laughs> yeah. we're we're like half an hour in and we've only talked about three seconds <laughs> of footage I warned in you. the first episode <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> no it's good stuff it's good stuff in fact uh maybe i'll i'll hopefully maybe i'll put some links down of bassa down in the episode description so we can talk about it more let's move on to the next episode where we see some interesting stuff which is uh, embarrassment of duplers Oh boy, are we going to talk about Andorians? Oh, you know it. We knew we we're going to talk about Andorians. So there is a shot of the starbase where they need to drop off the Dupler ambassador. Um, and you can see a lot of ships docked there. Um, a lot of them we've seen in previous episodes. It looks like there's a Luna and a Parliament there. There's what looks to be like the big Maki Raider type ship. Some other ships there. But guess what? Some Andorian ships too. They look humongous. Are they are they Kumari class? I think that's the only Andorian battlecruiser well, that we've been able to name there. It looks like they're they're missing wings. Or their wings are a lot shorter. Their wings are like kind of clipped. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think there's there's one that's very clearly like a Kumari, right? And I think it's just the angle that we're looking at it that you can't really see the wings. Hmm. It could be. But the other one, the reddish one, that's very clearly meant to be like an updated design. Yeah. If it's a Kamari, like the scale again is wildly off because those ships are about the size yeah. of the NX-01, right? So we know, we have a vague idea of how big the Parliament class ships in that shot are, which are 700-ish meters long, which is big. That's longer than a Galaxy class. So the, the Maki Raider there is also kind of out of scale if that's what it's meant to be. And then you have the Daedalus class, which is also actually bigger than it should be um at that point and maybe not no no it is a little bigger because i mean daedalus class ships are maybe like 200 meters max so you know looking at it fractionally you would expect the daedalus maybe to be about 20 or 30 percent smaller but you know that's nitpicking but the the, the andorian ships are really big compared to what you'd expect them to be if they were just significantly larger yeah than if they are those ships but i think this is the ds9 problem yeah. where when you're trying to get a aesthetically pleasing shot like actually scaling everything doesn't always work <laughs> i mean this is so we're starting to see this pop up and we're talk about this more when we get to the obina class later but the the, the art guys here are starting to like you know making a large 
variant of a ship just to you know look good and shots and, and be you know interesting in episode yeah. and we don't even have to wait for the abena class because the vulcan ship is huge yeah <laughs> that's right yes for sure definitely well i think that was intentional when we get there but yeah oh yeah yeah we'll get there yeah it's kind of neat to see uh these new andorian ships i know um aaron is just really into andorians and has a what, what i like to call an andorian problem so <laughs> <laughs> It's only a problem if you're not into Andorians. That's true. That's <laughs> like, true. I have to give that to you. But my thing is, like, because, like, yeah, the ship, the one that is very clearly just, it's it's a Kubari from all, like, that I can see of it. Yes. Like you said, scaled up. Also, when they're on board the station, you actually see the Andorians wearing the Ent era uniforms in the background. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. An interesting thing, too, in that promenade shot, there is a scene where you see the windows and what's outside the windows. The Delta, Delta flyer. flyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, maybe they're actually to scale and you just can't see them in this external shot that we've freeze-framed here. So, I mean, uh, one thing that I think they're doing a lot more in Season 2 is straight up using models of ships more, as opposed to, like, painting the ships or even painting over the models. Like, I think a lot of the shots we see of the Cerritos, I feel like, are probably just straight up renders, and they've got a nice lighting rig on it now, and, like, it's not... So in season one, a lot of times you could tell that they were rotoscoping over a 3D model, but they were still like hand painting certain things on top of it. In this shot, I think the Cerritos has some hand painted light on it. There's like the rim light. If you know what to look for, you can tell when a ship is moving, if that movement is like a render or if it's just, you know, tracking a flat card, right? which indicates that they're painting over it. So I said all that to say that it makes sense that we're seeing a lot of reuse of these things because it's like, these are the models we have. Um, and we need 50 ships here, right? So we're just going (laughs) to throw in a bunch of Delta Flyers because that's what's sitting around. (laughs) We got the Delta Flyers. Got to use them. Amazing. (laughs) But there is, I will, in their defense, I will say there is a certain amount of in-universe logic to it in the sense of Voyager comes back. So this is after Voyager got back, right? And this is actually, so this is in 2380. That's uh, two years, um, maybe uh, a year or two at least. After Voyager gets back, and then Voyager's like, oh, hey, we've got, <laughs> what's Semantics up, guys? We've that. got, like, Batmobile armor and transbasic <laughs> torpedoes and, uh, you know, yes. Borg uh, shuttlecraft that can literally survive in any environment. <laughs> Starfleet, do you want all of this? And, like, <laughs> obviously Starfleet engineers are going to be like, yeah, we want, you know, in- indestructible <laughs> shuttles that, uh... yeah. Well, and, and that's my whole theory behind the, the Delta Flyers showing up. They got back, and... They're like, yeah, we built this thing while we were in the Delta Quadrant. And like Starfleet engineers started looking at it. And they're like, oh, it's all it's all modular. It can be built on the fly on any starship. It's incredibly resilient. It incorporates all this newfound technology. You know what? Let's just like make some minor improvements using, you know, uh, stuff we've developed on our own in the last, you know, eight years. And let's start hammering these things out yeah. and make it the new <laughs> template. Yeah, That's right. totally. <laughs> I reinvent the wheel. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I I feel like Voyager is locked in a bunker and uh down like in a <laughs> in like in a gas giant somewhere and like in you know like section 31 Last shot of Voyager should have been Voyager being wheeled <laughs> into a giant warehouse. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they've got oh, just like oh, a team man. Yeah, they just got like a team of like thousands of engineers just like literally taking the ship apart, being like, holy shit, look at this stuff. 
Uh, anyway, now that you're here and uh, are there. Yeah, I did want to say one more thing about the yeah. shot. Um, so the Starbase uh, is actually really cool. Again, there's there's kind of a scale issue here with this Starbase, but it is based on the Starbase Vanguard type of Starbase. So the Vanguard novel, Star Trek novels, have been around for a while, and they're set in the original series era. They had a this uh, fan artist was um, commissioned to design a TOS style starbase for the Vanguard, and and so it's really cool to see that type of starbase become canon. And they they mentioned that it's an old base in the script. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, it's weird that you mentioned that because I remember like when I saw this episode, I'm all like, oh yeah, you know, that's totally a Star Trek design. And I was trying to remember where I had seen it from before. And you're right. It's very much like I, I didn't read the novels, but I'm familiar with the design because, you know, I like ships. But uh, <laughs> it's also a really like nice, aesthetically pleasing design. Oh, yeah. um, the Looks lines nice. of it are really good. Mm -hmm. It communicates a visual language of like what it's designed to do. The weird blue uh, ring around it is kind of odd, but like <laughs> overall, yeah, it's just it's yeah. a solid design. I think that blue ring is meant to, uh, is a callback to Earth Space Dock, right? Um, Earth Space Dock on the bottom of the mushroom has a really yeah. bright yeah, blue. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. Uh, it just, it low. looks weird here. Like the thing yeah. is like spewing gas or something. <laughs> right, yeah, it's, it is. There's a little it's, leak there, yeah, or something, yeah. Uh, um, so it, <laughs> At first, I thought, oh, that's like a shield, right? That's like protecting the docking ring. So the ships there are protected from attacks from above or something. But mm. it doesn't really hold up to closer scrutiny. So the Vanguard's Starbase Vanguard it apparently was called a uh, Watchtower class Starbase. And then I'm trying to find the guy, the name of the guy who designed it. Because he's, so there's a, the guy who designed it has an amazing website called, I think it's just called StarfleetMuseum.org. And, um, it's basically he did this whole entire history of the Earth Romulan War. Oh, that website is amazing. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, Masao, His designs are just—they're fantastic. They—they they just. Yeah, I think it's Masao Ozaki. Okazaki. Okay, yeah, that's that's his name masao okazaki and it's he, like it's uh, starfleetmuseum.org yeah starfleet so check that place out so it was he did, he made that website before enterprise came out so he's basically yeah, and taking, threw that whole thing out the window yeah yeah <laughs> it, it is a bummer cuz he took the daedalus which you know was the only design we had from that era and then extrapolated a whole starfleet from that and then wrote all this really cool history about the the Earth Romulan War using the Daedalus as a reference point. His designs were always these like very simple, very utilitarian. Like looked like they could be mass produced without a lot of bells and whistles. Yeah, like just a wartime economy space vessel right. that was still. They were all very aesthetically pleasing. Like, I remember one of his designs that I always loved was it, it was literally just like a series of bulbs, right? You mm -hmm. had the back that had the engine and it had the engine protrusions. And you had the forward bulb with some weapon extensions. And then he did the whole nose art thing on there. Yeah. It was, yep. just, it was very beautiful designs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I highly recommend uh, people check out his work. It's, it's brilliant. And, uh, and it's great to see his, uh, you know, an influence of, of his stuff make it to canon. So I really want to thank the Lower Decks uh, artists for for just diving in and leaning into all this peripheral stuff in in fan and yeah. in elevating really it great. the way they have between yeah. this no, and, and, and the passive stuff, too. Mm -hmm. To that uh, extent, uh, 
We've reached a point where they can do a lot more with animation that's really high quality on lower budgets. Yeah. And even like CG now, you know, they just launched that CG series that's, you know, targeted towards children. Prodigy. But you can do a lot of stuff now that is high quality and accessible to the mainstream or even just accessible to the fandom. I'm really hoping they start taking advantage of that. I would love to see them bring back uh, an anthology series that just tells one-off episodes, hour-long episodes of different eras and explore, you know, like create that aesthetic, create the various, you know, stories and let us see these things we've only heard about on screen. Yeah, that would be amazing. I, uh, I think there was some rumor that that's what Discovery was going to be back when early on that, that was Hillary's the original account. idea yeah. was it was oh i don't know if it was the original idea i know because that was the big netflix kerfuffle mm -hmm. they were pissed when they found out that the plan was to do a different crew every season different ship every season oh interesting crazy well uh i hate to bring us back on track again <laughs> that's exactly what i'm gonna do um gosh but i had no idea the Star slave driver stop rose can we just talk about <laughs> yes well you know what there's so much more to talk about although this next one is kind of a i want to say kind of a footnote but it's from one of the next episodes mugato gumato where the con man takes off from the mugato planet and the cerritos catches him and tries to tractor beam his ship uh, but then the ship like instantly disintegrates and the pilot tries to coerce Captain Freeman into giving him a shuttlecraft with a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> the the tractor factor joke is one of my <laughs> low-key, like the fun of the funnier jokes. Um it's the lowest tractor factor. Um but anyway, <laughs> I mean looking at the ship design, I mean it's kind of blocky and car-like and you know, has a, it still has the aesthetic of like iteration shuttles. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's. I mean, they Just got an assault on there. Something we see in this yeah. season is civilian ships with like clearly Federation technology. There's yeah. um, it makes me think of the nose. Definitely makes me think of like the OG Viper. Viper. Yes, that's good. It's that's like stable. the minivan of Vipers. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I I did uh, the other thing I wanted to say. I think I think it also really even the stripe really makes me think of uh, is it the Eagle Five from Spaceballs, the Winnebago? Oh my oh. god, yeah, like the the coloring <laughs> and the rust on it. Yeah, yes, definitely. Wow. I totally see that. The one thing that kills me is like its nacelles appear to be like a battery meter. Yeah. Like, yeah, what is going on? Multiple colors? The artists not realize what they were doing, or they're like, hey, it's 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 a garbage ship, and it's yeah. it's, it's no batteries, it's almost empty. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, and the whole uh, exploding con. I mean, that guy could have been dead. I mean, the Cerritos California ship, <laughs> California class ships already aren't aren't the best. You know, like, what if the transport operator was mildly incompetent? That that guy'd be dead. I don't know. It seems risky to have a button that you just slap to explode your ship. Yeah, would would anybody miss him? Though? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think he would miss himself. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like, he's got to think about his own survival here. A little too much faith in the Federation. Clearly, he didn't watch too much of the series to realize how unreliable <laughs> transport. He didn't watch the intro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> amazing uh, you think like this only would work if a starfleet ship intercepts you right like he's he had to like someone built this the self-destruct feature with the like okay you're you're stopped by a starfleet ship 
that has a competent transporter officer. Just just freaking hit this button, man. You'll be fine. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, that's his whole plan, right? He yeah. has set this up to be like this. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, he accidentally runs into a Klingon ship and he's like, oh, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny part is that doesn't Admiral Freeman contact Captain Freeman? It's like, oh, yeah, like people are running scams in this sector. Yeah, and it's this guy, right? That's it, the whole joke. So, like, has he self destructed the ship before? Like, how many times have this sca- has the scam been run with this I one ship? I feel like, yeah, I vaguely, I feel like that was a vibe I got that they, they just sort of fell for for it again <laughs> does he so he, like so he already victimized someone that he like pieces together well that's where again? this ship came from probably he scammed some civilian uh, and then he rigged it to, to explode when he gets tractor beamed again this yeah, seems he probably super sets risky. it up after every encounter and then he like looks <laughs> at each encounter and decides oh yeah i can get something off of these guys <laughs> seems dangerous waiting for the next rube Oh, geez. Okay, well, let's talk about the next ship, uh, which is the the Malveen. Oh, boy! Yes, from the episode where Pleasant Fountains lie. Um, I hope you like gold, just like the Pakled <laughs> planet, because there is a bunch of gold on this ship. This ship is just, I want to make sweet, sweet love to it. It is such a <laughs> You know, it, uh, so the, I looked at, I was looking at the MSD. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I don't think we were supposed to look too closely at that. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the funny part about So before you go on, like th- we have clear shots of the MSD in this episode. So there are a lot of things to be seen. Well, I just, I just here, wanted but... to say that the, so when I saw the, the MSD, like I wasn't even looking at the labels, but I was looking at the side of the, the like the shape of the ship from the side. <laughs> I was like, right. this looks familiar. Where have I seen this before? And then I, I remembered uh, it looks a lot like the Moira uh moya from farscape oh, moya from farscape oh yeah really does. Like the, wow. yeah I, I wonder if that was a little nod um because the, the tail especially is very very similar yeah, it's got the double tail and i've know i've seen a shape like that in like i think a like space fighter sim Mm-hmm. Like the big bad aliens are like these organic ships with that shape. Yeah, maybe uh oh, like the Vasudans from Free Space or something. Yeah, something like that. I like the little circles around the nacelles. It kind of gives it like a retro side. It's like weirdly fantasy with all like the you know flourishes and the in the gold, but then you've got the little circles around the nacelles, fifties sci-fi kind of situation going on there. Everything about this ship is just like just a beautiful design. It's cool. <laughs> Like the the whole armor, the glittering scales, yes, the gold embossing on it that forms like the shape of like a fantasy creature. But it also does what I love uh, that Star Trek like gets away from too often is exploring the Star Trek rules for warp ship design, where it's all like, yeah, you have to have two nacelles and they have to have fifty percent line of sight and you have to have this right. Like, all that stuff. And this ship does it beautifully. Like, I think the only thing it's really missing is that there's no evident deflector. But that's, like, a real common. Even in TOS, you didn't always see a clear deflector. Yeah. But uh, overall, yeah, really, really uses that language really well to create this, like, ship that it really speaks to who its designers were. Yeah. <laughs> these people, these uh, cosplayers. Uh... <laughs> I mean, another another <laughs> angle I think would have been fun is if they had made it just like a giant like sailing ship kind of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like if they really wanted to lean into the um the Renaissance <laughs> feel of it all, like a giant trireme or something. Yeah. 
I feel like that's been done to death. Oh, that has too. been. I mean, I, Treasure Planet's one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah. But uh, but yeah, I but I mean, like I I like this ship, and I think it was it was super cool and definitely an interesting. You know, we really haven't seen a ship like this before, and that's something I think that you know it, it would be fun to see more of. It's just more civilian capital ship, like big cruise liners and things like that. I think yeah. my real question for you is, when is this ship coming to Star Trek? Online? <laughs> um. Oh, well, I mean, uh, probably someday. I you know, uh, I don't know. You know, what I'm, you're saying is you haven't been working on it. <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I, we haven't. You know, we haven't been working on it. But you know, I think I think obviously there would be a demand for it. It would be easy easy enough to add to the game. You know, we do have a bit of back and forth when we are adapting lower deck stuff because we have to make it fit. We have to kind of flesh out the details and make it seem like it belongs in the quote unquote real world. You're basically speaking to two different uh, design settings, right? Exactly, yeah. And it's really, really a hard line to walk without making it look completely ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we did that with the parliament and there was um, a bit of back and forth from CBS about feedback of, you know, like, oh, it's not quite. You know, I imagined it more blue was a note that we got. I was like, all right, we'll make it more blue. Like, <laughs> more blue. You know, more we nuts. started started with just a normal Federation gray ship, you know, and, and they wanted more blue. And it's like, okay, fine. That's I mean, that's amazing. easy enough for us to do. Uh, but we, we did add a lot of details that weren't really in the show, um, but are you know, lots of little decals and, and rounding out things and, and phase of trips here and there and stuff like that, that you don't really see in the show model because, you know, we want it to look good up close when a player is, uh, has it, is flying it. Well, and that was one of those things too, that that was one of the season one ships. And I feel like in season two, they've really gone like so much more in depth with the detail and all mm-hmm. of their design work. Completely, yeah. mm-hmm. Um, for sure whether or not that's 100 percent true and it's not just me being you know a stupid fanboy <laughs> no i i would agree but actually speaking of design i kind of want to go in because we've talked about the outside of the ship and like nice. i could talk about this ship for hours <laughs> i want to talk about the inside too oh yeah everything we can see in the msd yeah well not just the msd but like the actual like interiors of the ships that we of this ship that we see they do this weird thing where, like, we see the engine room and they're, uh, what the heck do they call it? The dragon's. <laughs> Some dragon's fancy. Blood or yeah. Dragon's breath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, their engine room, they're, they're basically, their warp drive, their, uh, matter antimatter reactor is shaped like a dragon, right? So is that what that is? I was gonna, I was gonna mention that because. I, I choose to believe they have a literal dragon on the ship that's performing a function. <laughs> I feel like that's not the case. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to agree. I feel like disagree. that's a stretch. <laughs> it's nowhere, There's an organ- nowhere near the engine. No. Organic sheep they've enslaved <laughs> to generate the 1.1 gigawatts of power. Look, the Cerritos has beluga whales, and these guys have a dragon, and that's just how They're it is. They're not using the beluga whales to power you the Cerritos. You don't Cerritos. know that. We, we're going to get to the belugas <laughs> later. Anyway, so yes. I suspect that antimatter is not beluga. <laughs> anyway, you're talking about dragons. The thing is, so they, they have that design, and yet they have the banquet hall that's very Renaissance. They also have like hallways that are just like standard Federation hallways, right? They have rooms that are just standard, almost like they would fit in on any Starfleet vessel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a really cool like concept that like, yeah, you know, this is still a spaceship, 
They're just thrown like trappings over certain aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a cruise ship, right? You have the big like yeah, exactly fancy areas, and then you you know where people the kitchen just looks like a. <laughs> this has got to be like their their equivalent of like Air Force One, where it's like half for show and comfort right, and yeah. luxury. Yeah, that's a good and point. And like they've got some you know corridors and and Jeffrey Stoops and stuff too. They got the room for when Harrison Ford needs to kick somebody out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, all I can say is if this makes it into STO, you have to take out the uh, warp core component and include the dragon component instead because <laughs> that's just how it works. But yeah, I mean, we and we talked about the the other some other uh, the details here, like the the stables. They have the, and they literally show horses on the MSD <laughs> instead of shuttle crap if they show a dragon there. there's a room with yeah. just a dragon in it yeah that's right it makes sense their planet supposedly has dragons on it i wonder if there's that's what i'm saying dude it's got to be a real dragon <laughs> i'm not saying there isn't a real dragon on board i'm just if, saying oh, okay. it doesn't power the ship <laughs> if, if tendy can genetically engineer a golden retriever that can like vomit bats yeah like i feel like you could genetically engineer a dragon Without too much trouble. That's <laughs> a little dark for Federation membership. That's true. That's true. Now, as a, as a closing thoughts here, like I really, I mean, we talked about before about the production value. I mean, what a what a well like you know detailed ship design to be used so not often in in this episode. Like you don't see it that much. I mean, you get the one the couple of beauty shots, but like that's it. But what a, I mean, I'm just still staring at the still we have, and it's like wow, there's just so much detail there. It's just so cool to see. More yeah, evidence like, of nice details. Hopefully they uh, they'll come back. I think yes, uh, Billups' so. parents will come back. Also, uh, I just noticed the the force field has a really cool like filigree pattern on it. Um, there's like a pink filigree oh, really? <laughs> instead of hexagons. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just a really cool touch. Amazing. All right. Well, geez, enough of the Monavine. Yeah, it's cool. As cool and gold as that ship was. Let's move on to. Uh, arguably the best episode of the season, Wage Juge. I was going to include the Chital, the uh, Klingon ship, but honestly, it's a bird of prey we've seen a million times. Did you guys notice anything different about it? It just seemed like kind of standard bird of prey fare to me. No, uh, I think it was supposed to be just a bog standard Burrell. Yeah, okay. I was kind of disappointed by that, but I get why they did it. Yeah, totally. It is very uh, identifiably Klingon. Identifiable, fan favorite, <laughs> all that stuff. That's right. Uh, but let's talk about the Cheval. It's... It's got the ring shape, and you know, I immediately thought of the Dakir from I think Enterprise era, um, and I think we've seen it in other places too. Well, it looks like to me it takes design, aesthetic, and language from like the disco era Vulcan ship we see a little uh, bit the cruiser, and then like you mentioned yeah, the Dakir, bit, yeah. the Vulcan ships from Enterprise, and I think it like combines both of those elements. And it's like humongous, like this is a ginormous ship too, right? I don't think it's as big as you think it is. You don't though. think you don't think so? It's just uh, I it's think just it's the just angles? the Cerritos is pretty small. Well, so we have to Mike McMahon and Bradward, I forget his last name, but he's a producer on Lower Decks. Actually, tweeted out the canon length of the Cerritos, and it was like five hundred and forty something meters. Just decently big. Yeah, right? so that's that's about 100 meters shy of the Enterprise D. So the Cerritos is not. I thought it was it's not I, as small as I think it is. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So the you know the Vulcan cruiser, I think that puts it about twice as big, at least. Yeah, that that's yeah, that thing's <laughs> huge. <laughs> so it is ginormous. I mean, but but I think that I and mean, we don't see a lot else to really distinguish it from other ships like the Dakir. I mean, we're looking at the still right now. It's got these triangles on the sides of the ring, which are the most visually distinctive 
you know, make it the most different from the Dekir. But also, if you look at the the difference in the hull, there are a lot more angles in the uh, Cheval. They, the Memory Alpha calls it the Cheval-type Vulcan cruiser. Yeah, I think, I mean, it has, so they basically, they've added nacelles to it, right? Because that's what I think what the things on the side are supposed to be. So it's using kind of a combo Vulcan Starfleet warp technology if it's got the ring and the nacelles going on. Mm. Um, I didn't think of that. Yeah, that could be it. And then it, it's it's really cool to see, you know, one of the Andorian ships, it was clearly like a different design than the Kamari. But I, I what I like about this ship is that they didn't just like take the Dakir and make that right they like made Flap stuff on. yeah they made yeah. a new a right. new design it's clearly a vulcan ship but also also new which is great and it makes me wonder about why this is this is sorry i'm going to apologize in advance this is this is a super deep dive question but like yeah why okay. does vulcan have a navy you know what i mean like okay <laughs> i yeah you know we're gonna Here argue we go. about this real quick because right. this is something that has been <laughs> argued in the fandom for ages, and you know this, and I know this. Um, it is to what extent do the individual worlds actually maintain their own organizations, right? right. Yep. Because in DS9, they mentioned rolling the Bajoran militia into the Federation, but then also in TNG, we see there is planets that are Federation members that have their own defense force. Right. And it's like this, always this weird question of whether planets do. And I, I always got the feeling that the truth was some planets do, some planets don't. Vulcan's uh, naval fleet is, it's probably just a science fleet, right? Just out there exploring, doing science stuff alongside the Federation Starfleet. On the other hand, you might have, you know, more paranoid worlds. Like, I'm betting Andoria. I think this actually even comes up in the novels, where they maintain their own defensive fleet. And I'm betting there's plenty of worlds like that, where they're not Starfleet. But like, there's a protocol for interaction between those two groups. Right. So in like times of war and conflict, there's a way for them to mobilize as a unit. Right. Yeah, I buy that. And I think, you know, we even even Discovery mm -hmm. Season 3, it's possible the Earth Defense Force has existed this whole time, but it's just essentially the Coast Guard, right? Yeah. Like Starfleet's the Navy and then the EDF is the Coast Guard. And maybe this is, <laughs> right. the, these Vulcan ships are essentially like, well, you know, we really, most Vulcans really don't want to consort with Andorians and humans. So we're going to keep our Vulcan Science Academy yeah. and our Vulcan... <laughs> Vulcan ships and, and really uh, elitist, do our own sciencey things by ourselves. Because <laughs> it was really interesting. I mean, this this episode, like you said, it's it's. I think it's the best of the season because you see, like, oh man, like the people who go to Starfleet are kind of the uh, the cast off, and it is just great to, to think about them as like, right? Oh, they're the <laughs> they're the black sheep, right? They're still so tightly wound when they get to a Starfleet ship. If you look at Spock and Tuvok and every into Pole and everybody else, but like still, they had to be, <laughs> they had to be too crazy for Vulcans. It's like, oh man. Here's the thing, though. That was even Tuvok's story, though. Oh yeah. Was, <laughs> he was sent to Starfleet because he was too tightly wound. Like that was one of the things that like kind of bothered me about their portrayal of Vulcans in this. Mm -hmm. the implication in Voyager was that. Kuvak was way too uptight, even by Vulcan standards. Oh, interesting. Like, I always reference him to as, uh, you know, back when Tuvok mm. was a kid and still a member of the uh, Proud Vulcans, right? right. He's oh, super racist. And it's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Uh, and it was not Starfleet, though, that mellowed him out. But, like, that was a part of why he was supposed to be there. You know, that's why his parents wanted him to. There's got to be, there's got to be, like, the, 
the the Vulcan the Vulcan Navy has got to have like their sweet spot of like how Vulcan you need to be because if you go <laughs> off the rails, go to Starfleet. If you're too tightly wound, go to Starfleet. But if you're like the sweet spot of like you know you follow orders and you're, vo- you're logical, but like you know not too a bunch of a tight ass, uh, you could stay. That's fine. <laughs> I always get the feeling that like Vulcan science is more like we're just gonna collect a whole bunch of data. And that's the end of it. Anyway, we were getting completely off topic of ships, but yeah, there's no like experimentation or <laughs> postulation. Do, yeah. So like we got to space and we're staying right. here. We're good. I, I mean, I, I want to, I, I do want to bring up a point before we move on, because I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that this is, you know, when you're writing a story yeah. and you're like, we're going to show a Vulcan ship. And, you know, Mike McMahon was like really excited because we hadn't really seen that before. But it, it's fun to me to think about all of the questions of the world building questions that immediately will conjure, you know, like. And I, I think that's one of the cool things about talking about Star Trek and these fictional universes is like going hard on these on these questions about like, well, wait, I didn't think it worked that way. And then and then like, you know, it's not real, so it doesn't work at all. But like, but you can like have fun talking with your friends about like, well, th- this is what. <laughs> how it could right. be you know and and make it all sort of fit so i, I just think that's a fun fun way to talk about right. it well, and i think that was one of the failings of enterprise right was they had this great opportunity totally. to really explore these alien cultures that wind up forming yeah. the federation and like i just feel like really kind of laid down on that to a yeah. certain extent at least the first two seasons did i mean yeah once you got into things like kishara and uh, the one at the end of the zindi arc um and then there's the one where they actually go to andoria to look for yeah, the a r yeah. which didn't like the world building in that but, like as far as the characterization i thought it was really yeah. solid I'm glad to see they're doing that same sort of thing in or in uh, Lower Decks. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, let's talk about a different ship. Um, this one, a little exciting, from the episode, uh, I've heard it called First First Contact and also First Contact. Um, but let's go with First Contact. Uh, it's it's the USS Archimedes. Um, this is the vaguely Excelsior-like ship. Unofficially on social media, um, this has been labeled the Obina class. It's been confirmed uh, named that we talked about in a previous episode, Aaron. This is based on the art director's name, um, which is kind of a neat little thing. Um, once again, you know, just like actually the Vulcan cruiser Cheval that we just talked about, this is another situation where we're taking an existing ship design and making it ginormous and then potentially changing some things about it. Although this ship has a lot of mm-hmm. other things. it's It's got like the kind of general hull style of the Excelsior, but there's so much that's different about it. Um, like I said, the size is different. The deflector is kind of like a sovereign class looking deflector. Yeah, well, it, it, and it's it's great that you say that because I remember I keep when I, as soon as I saw this ship, I kept thinking about what Captain Freeman said uh, at the end of season one. She's like, "Don't make it all sovereign class." Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I know they did it. They yeah. did it with the Obita. They, they took the Excelsior and made they it look, all sovereign they class. They did it. <laughs> um, uh, I do like that you got yeah. to see. You know that the top you get to see the ship from all sorts of angles and i do want to mention the captain of the obina too because she uh it was she was a great callback to ensign gomez from i think best of both worlds or maybe q who uh, one of those anyway she was an ensign on the enterprise d and she spilled her hot chocolate all over captain picard and she was really the actress was really charming she did a great job and it's really cool to see right. that character come back <laughs> and it was really great too because uh she showed up in like i think two or three episodes totally and they did portray her as somebody with, like, you know, big dreams, right? And it's nice right, to yeah. see a resolution to that storyline, even though she did wind up commanding a dump truck of a ship. Uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> well, one thing I do want to call it real quickly is a similarity to the old Excelsior design. You don't see it in very many of the shots, but I, you know, and I mentioned this when we talked about the episode in a, in a previous episode with Aaron, but it's how terrible it looks. Yeah. No, I remember that. <laughs> no that's not what I said. Uh, it's, it's the, uh, we've got like the schematic of the ship up here or the MSD even. Um, appearing behind the captain's chair, which you can see in only a few of the Team G episodes. Um, so kind of a neat little callback to, I think, you know, I think Sulu's Excelsior captaining where you can Back see. Back when he the... had a uh, young ensign on board who was super racist. Just saying, man, <laughs> Tuvok had problems when he was young. Damn. <laughs> glossed over. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, is there anything else to say about the ship? I mean, we don't really get a lot of uh, ideas of its capabilities or anything like that before it's completely disabled we just kind of get a look at it and that's basically it yeah i wish i wish they had i mean they did it they they tried to show the captain gomez and her crew not giving up right like they 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 cut to them a few times and they're like trying right. to fix the shuttles and then they're trying to do some other stuff i wish they had given them a bit more agency to be like oh well we can't we're gonna crash into the planet but we can at least divert it into the ocean so it doesn't kill a bunch of people you know what i mean like like that was my big thing like even just punching a hole in the side of the ship is gonna divert your trajectory right. at a certain point especially if right. you do it far enough out you know you got 20 hours Hours, like i mean punch a hole in the warp that's, core yeah that's throw yourself <laughs> off course yeah at what point do you just uh turn yeah, off anti i feel like they don't kill if you're gonna write for a science fiction show you need to like at least make a moon landing in kerbal space program because <laughs> like, like, you 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 learn like how move like how movement works in space is so not intuitive if you haven't. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that if you ever even read about like the early uh, NASA attempts right. at not docking, but meeting two aircraft in orbit, right? Mm. And right. how bad they were at it, right? It makes you realize that these were the smartest men, the most knowledgeable men of their era. Right. And making this work was insanely hard for them. But it's one of those things. It's totally counterintuitive. Right. That also leads to the problem of then what happens when you portray that on screen. I think we're in an era where like science fiction fans are like smart enough and knowledgeable enough and have enough access to information that they're not going to look at it and go, uh, why? I don't understand why this is happening like this. You know, they're going to be much more accepting of uh, this is weird. I'll, I'll throw a shout out to The Expanse because I always do that. Um, they are really careful about stuff like mm. that. Um, and they, they do a good job of visualizing uh, orbital mechanics and stuff for people so they can understand that like you're always moving <laughs> and that, that's something i think this episode does actually do yeah. like that you know when the, <laughs> right. when the um archimedes is disabled it's not it doesn't sit still right it's it's just keeps going right well, and i do like that too it's it's they call out right away they're like yeah we're 20 hours from the planet right i'm like oh that's moving really fast assuming these you know, two planets weren't very close to each other, which you generally, I don't think, would see in a habitable planet. But still, it's it's a great call-out. Like, yeah, right. planets yeah. are really far apart, you know? Space is vast. Yeah, yeah I wish we had seen more um, about the Archimedes, or at least this class of ship, but honestly, it's just, uh, I'm happy just looking at it. I'm, I'm looking at it right now, I mean, I'm, I'm still just having a good time, so. Okay, you know what? Come on, can we at least for one <laughs> moment just acknowledge all the problems with this ship design? Come on, the bubble butt... <laughs> the bubble butt. Bubble wow. butt uh, That's a problem for you. It's a problem. It doesn't look good. 
the weird uh, <laughs> wart engineer on the engineering hole, the neck that looks like it spent way too long roiding out in a gym. Wow. Uh, oh, just so much wrong with this design. Wow. Yeah, the, the upper body that looks like that, hey, you know, maybe those uh, pec implants were not necessary. Like... <laughs> Come on! Why does everybody love this shift? Too beefy. I don't know. Like I, everything about I hope we can still be friends after this. For me, and it may be that like, because <laughs> like here's the thing: I like this ship. Um, I love the ships in the expanse. Uh, it, it was hard for me to like adjust to them because like I had developed an idea of what they looked like from reading the book, and the shows don't right. really jive with that so much. But that's all just, you know, my head. But, like, I love, you know, the Andromeda from, you know, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Very different design language. But for something about this ship, it just doesn't work with the rest of the Starfleet vessels we've seen. Especially the hero ships. Which, even though it hasn't gotten a show, the Excelsior was very much the flagship yeah, was, of the Federation. You know, it was the ship of the line for a long time. And, uh, I don't know, I think, I, I like it. I, I think... I just, I'm just happy to see more for whatever faults that you find with it. It, it looks, it fits in this era of Starfleet in terms of detail, right? The nacelles are sovereign class nacelles, right? The, the, the color of the hull, yeah, it all, it all fits in that. And that's something that I think it took us a long time to get there to see that. And the, the very first time we saw that was a little disappointing with the um, inquiry. I think they didn't really understand mm, how... Yeah how much right. people were looking forward to seeing this era of Starfleet on screen. And, uh, you know, I think it just wasn't a priority for the production. They're like, oh, crap, we need a bunch of Starfleet ships. And so they made what they made. So seeing this era getting more filled out is exciting to me. And I think it's cool. It's good for Star Trek Online, obviously, to see see more variants of existing designs and more Starfleet ships. I think you're getting a little bit of a backlog, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, we are, for sure. Uh, and we... <laughs> Hey, nothing wrong with you that. Still have a, uh, you still have an Andorian <laughs> battlecruiser to release. Uh, oh. How many decades has it been now? <laughs> on board with that. Oh, dear. You know, just to jump on the bandwagon, like getting, like, we saw the Enterprise E introduced in what, like 98 or something like that? When was, when did first contact come out? 97? 96 or 97, I think. And like, how long has it been? And we've not seen any of the design elements in the Sovereign class reflected in almost any Starfleet ships. And you're right. I mean, that's a lot. What I, I like about this is even down to the freaking deflector, man, having that color be that that we've seen in the Sovereign class just scratches that ship ship uh, itch for sure. Uh, but but uh, let's move on to the piece resistance of this episode now that we've been <laughs> going for so long on the rest of the of the show. But that's the Cerritos. Oh, dear God, even so for I got to pump the brakes already, because not only are there new things in this ship that we've seen, which we'll get to in a little bit, but they even redesigned the freaking model for season two. And, you know, I'm Thomas, I'm excited what kind of details you've picked out here, because, you know, even as a layperson, I'm sure I'm only catching like half of the I say layperson, you know, I, I don't design ships for a living, mm-hmm. um, but um, I mean, there's so many different like they've obviously rebottled the ship. The The entire saucer has been redone. Um, I can tell even just the, the lighting is different. Uh, we've got the lights on the name and registry colors different. Um, I could tell on the underside of the saucer where the pylons hit hit the saucer. There's like little uh, reinforcements there. Let's see what else. Lifeboats uh, details are, are there. One of my favorite uh, details, the shuttle bays. 
I think that's what they are on the back of the saucer are kind of highlighted in blue, the little like, I, I guess, force field effect there. But they've also done some other like, I, I feel like the, the cells are, are they've, they've adjusted the length of them based like versus the, the saucer. What was your reaction? What stands out to you? To me, I noticed um, every now and then we'll get a nice close-up shot and you'll see like the RCS thrusters, which I think is a great little touch, the little yellow squares um, around the rim of the saucer. That, um, and that's where the the maneuvering thrusters are. Right. And you actually... That... We see them firing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You can see them firing in first contact. And I don't know, have we ever seen this before in Star Trek? I don't think so. I mean, in the... Well, no, that's not true. Um to be fair, is there to... a TNG episode where this happens? Maybe no. There's in the booby trap episode. In or... um, well, they use the thrusters. I don't know if you actually see gas jets fire from them, um, mm. like BSG style, which I think that's what we're talking here, here but specifically, but yeah. Like, yeah. But in JJ Abrams' Into Darkness or 2009, there's yeah, a no, no, yeah. There's a shot that. where the Enterprise is like you know rising above the atmosphere of Titan or something, and you see little a bunch of like thrusters coming from the bottom of the saucer. So I, I guess technically that was the first time. Yeah, technically. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if they're, I don't know if they, the, the, the cloaking mines from DS9, if they, if you saw little thrusters hmm. and jets from those guys um, when the Defiant was laying the minefield. But this seemed like the first time a hero ship, you ever saw them coming from a hero ship for sure. Not, not, yeah. not including the Enterprise in uh, 2009. Anyway, you know the shot. Don't they show them firing in uh, in Beyond where the, or no, was it Into Darkness where the ship is crashing into Earth and then it pops out of the clouds? And yeah, that, that, I think that's the shot I'm thinking of. Uh, oh, okay. So either, way, okay. like, either way, it might be, might have been in both movies, honestly, because they're, they're, always, <laughs> they're always screwing up the Enterprise in those movies. <laughs> Poor Enterprise. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> really tragic. Um, so, I know. Go, going back to getting off the whole, like, how much we love RCS thrusters, though. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that I do want to yes. comment on, though, is because, like, this, we talked about this previously, about it feels to me, and I think you had mentioned this too, Thomas, is that they're using a lot more models this season over, like, rotoscoped CG scenes. Yeah. I think that, like, really shows through in, like, a lot of their space shots. Yeah. And just looking at comparison shots, I feel like it shows through a lot in how much like it's crisper and nicer looking the Cerritos is, you know? Yeah. Whereas like with the matte painting or the paintings or rotoscoping or whatever, you know, you're looking at, I feel like there's almost like a certain dullness to it for some reason. Right. Well, and the, and the, the kind of range of motion in those shots are, is a lot more limited, I think, than what you get. Yeah. From this, you yeah. Know. Because it's, it's, cells like right. every cell and every variance creates like this massive amount of work right especially when you're dealing with like a high detail object like the cerritos or any right. other starship so one one question i have it's i mean rhetorical because i don't know if i mean unless you you all have heard something but is you know are the changes in season two in the detail of the cerritos like you know you mentioned the cell struts and and uh, any of the other details added that i noticed is that meant to indicate is it, canon well, is it is it a refit part of the refit or is it just sort of like no it always looked like this we just got better at modeling <laughs> no i'm serious oh, you know like yeah. is it it's yeah. gonna be it, 
pre DS9 Klingon head ridges. Right. <laughs> it's got to be both. It's got to be both because at the end of the season one, we've we even talked about this today. The don't make it come out all sovereign class. So there is a refit happening, but then there's there are like other significant changes happening to the model where it couldn't have just been a refit. Right. So if you asked Mike McMahon, I feel like is this like canonically explained by the refit? I feel like you would probably say yes, but the reality is that it's yeah. both. Yeah. Right. Like they've they've made these fixes in universe and they've made this out of universe new model. And that's why it's different. Uh, one thing I will complain about, which is a super <laughs> super <laughs> nitpicky detail, which yes. is so yeah, yeah. So there are these these red and green lights that dot the saucer, um, the outer rim of the saucer. Yes. Yeah, the running lights <laughs> yeah. don't make any sense. Yeah, the navigation so the so <laughs> navigation lights. So on real ships and most Starfleet ships, you would have the green light on the right side or the starboard side, and you'd have the red light on the port side or the left side. Mm, and okay. and the reason that and this is airplanes have this too. And the reason is that when you see the airplane or the ship far away you need to know what direction it's traveling, right? Is it coming towards you? Is it going away from you or whatever? And so you you can know if you see both the red and the green light and you see the green light on the left side, that means the ship is coming towards you, right? right. You see the green light on the right side and you see the red light too. That means that the ship is traveling away from you. Um, if you right. only see the green light, that means that you're you know perpendicular and you can obviously tell if it's going to the left or the right but if you're only seeing the green light that means that you know you're facing the the right side of the ship so christmas tree arrangement on the cerritos is very confusing to me because it's not that's not really and that's one of those things that uh, a lot of sci-fi does with their design is that they take from existing design elements and they slap them on you know their their sci-fi spaceship like i remember i can't remember what show it was but there was a spaceship and it was like, like a civilian freighter and i just remember it had a piot tubes on it and attack vector wings on it that are all those are useless in space right <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's one of these things where like yeah you know this this it makes, looks cool well, that even looks cool right but it's a design language people know right and sure. in the red and green lights it's like yeah this makes sense to a certain extent right these are sensors that the ship is using to gain information about what's going on outside the ship. Then you take a step back and you're like, are they really necessary? Like the whole, uh, when Ransom is piloting the ship by hand, he's all like, get rid of the view screen. We're doing this old school. And I'm all like, there was never a school in space where you were visually piloting a vessel. Like, even now, like the... the the space shuttle, yeah, it has windows. Like, that's not how they're approaching right. the ISS. It's all <laughs> telemetry, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I even, and I'm not 100% sure if this is true or not, but I've even read, like, the Dragon module is, like, all automated. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're largely just passengers there in case something goes wrong, which is the same way with, like, old school, uh, this old school space program. You would see from, like, astronauts, you know, from yeah. back in the day where they're like, yeah, you know, we're not really test pilots anymore, you know? We just sit in there in case something goes wrong. <laughs> that is true. Glorified computer you know that- programmers. <laughs> Uh, it's funny you guys are talking about all these red green uh, running lights, and I'm I have partial red green color blindness. I had no oh, idea, no. <laughs> and I feel like I'm better off for it. <laughs> maybe so maybe it doesn't maybe that, me. <laughs> so maybe that's what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> the art director Obina is like just realize he's just had a revelation. He's like, oh sh- oh hell, he just I don't know, <laughs> put him wherever. Oh no. <laughs> 
Oh dear. All right. Well, let's talk about the new features of the series that we see in the season. The coolest, or at least most most dramatic. I don't know about coolest. The, the coolness factor is it's the blue lights on the shuttle bay, right? <laughs> the yeah. I mean, yes. ooh, blew me away. <laughs> no, I was talking about the removal of the outer hull. Um, and it's funny because in Star Trek, we've heard about inner hulls and outer hulls and stuff before. And now we get to see this visual depiction of how removing an outer hull looks. But it's obviously for a plot device. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is this uh, how you pictured a ship without its outer hull looks? Yes, despite the whole concept being completely ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's its own issue. But uh... somebody mentioned that, and I think this is true, that like they kind of foreshadowed this a little bit when Tendi and Rutherford are building the model. Yes, yes. the model, yes. Uh, it had a, right. an orange inner skin. And I yeah. I think I remember just, I mean, I built models of ships, you know, when I was a kid. So sure. I think I just remember like, oh, that's just like the, the color of the plastic or something, right? But then, right. Like, <laughs> then you see this and it's like, oh okay that's like actually the inside of the uh you know, and i i love the fact that there's actually because this is an ent era callback mm-hmm. they mentioned the whole plating being polarized right yeah. mm. so they can't fly through with the whole plating on because it'll attract the goobers that are out there in space right. right i thought that was a really neat callback and you know a good explanation of why they have to remove the whole plating like why you would ever design a starship where like you can manually turn a switch and like the whole plating comes off that just doesn't seem very <laughs> secure to me <laughs> i mean to, to be fair i mean they they made it they made i think they did a good i thought they did a good job of showing it that it was actually like a big job that took literally yeah, every person on the crew to do. to do it yeah and they uh they had the little twisty thing from first contact which i thought was a good yes contact. that was yeah. cool yeah you know but the only problem is you know this is dangerously close to the guy that explodes his whole ship when he gets tractor beams <laughs> this is like a similar feature because the only difference is the guy w- with the shuttle that gets tracked when he gets tractor beamed to self-destruct is he has wired everything to come apart with a button whereas here everyone has to pull a little uh device you know on the hull or whatever so i'm, I'm always like look i'm always looking at stuff like this and being all like this is way over designed right <laughs> like every panel has like a release latch and yeah there's like two different latches that you can access it's just yeah. this point where you're like God, the, the feat of engineering that this <laughs> ship is and then it's all like and they refit these things <laughs> yeah apparently i mean maybe that's why they have the panels that you can disengage so it's easier to actually you know get into the guts oh, and yeah that can be it pop shit stuff out that's crazy i just uh just seeing the inside of the inner hole is never something i would because it's always just mentioned you know when the borg's cutting in it's like oh they penetrated the outer hole or whatever mm-hmm. but never seeing the inside it's weird i thought it would be more stripped down it, like it visually it's like a skin on the ship when i'm looking at it yeah well i kind of got the sense from this episode that like the outer layer is like an armor yeah yeah which, even with like deflectors and shields and all that stuff kind of makes sense because like base is really, really like spread out. Like we have this vision of like asteroid fields where it's just chunks of stuff everywhere, but like it's really spread out. You're moving so fast that there's so much junk and so much risk. Then you also need things like you need protection from all the various radiation sources. Mm. You know, there's the whole like issue of heat conductivity and how you're uh, expelling your waste heat there's you know all these different issues in starship design and the inner hull outer hull is kind of like this elegant design concept it's cool 
I mean, definitely no, no getting around that for sure. Um, let's move on to the next new feature. And we're going to get to the, the one that we've inspired our drinks for in, in just a second. There is a line of dialogue and I already got bent out of shape about in our recording for this episode. So Aaron already knows about my, my aneurysm I've had about this, but, um, so there's a rubber ducky room on the Cerritos and that's like can in fact. It's it's the quarters for Rubber Duck McNeil. We established this. <laughs> no, this is so. This is the problem with uh, this is a feature of having a show that is both a parody of and in canon. You know, a piece of canon of uh, Rubber of the Duck source material. Was canon before the Cerritos MSD ever hit the scene. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously a callback to the TNG MSC where there's mm-hmm. a, a rubber ducky. Mm-hmm. And now Tendy goes, hey, do you want to visit the rubber ducky room? And I'm thinking like, oh, shit, this is now a real thing <laughs> that can be explained. I don't know. What do you th- what do you think, Thomas? Like, is is there a, <laughs> like what's what's going on? Like, I'm losing my mind. So, I mean, OK, so here's here's what I think. Here's how you make it. <laughs> here's how you make it work. OK. Which is there's a concept in programming of having a rubber duck on your on your desk. And okay. so you're trying to debug code or something like something's not working. And so you take your rubber duck and you're like, oh, uh, you explain the, how the code works line by line to your little rubber duck. And then the idea is that, like, by explaining it, you'll figure out what the bug is because you'll be like, and this thing is, you know, in line 47 is supposed to. <laughs> do x and then as you read it to the rubber duck you're like oh no that's not what it's actually doing or oh i forgot a bracket that means or that my co-workers are all rubber ducks yeah <laughs> no i mean that's the, the rubber duck it's it's for when you don't have somebody that you can talk to you have a little yeah. rubber duck that you talk mm. to so the rubber duck room must be a place where you can like throw a code up on the wall and have oh like a God somebody evaluate it for you maybe like a hologram or yeah, there's like a holodeck character there yeah exactly <laughs> and so it's just it's, it's like a, a holodeck it's a, rubber ducky it's a yeah it's it's not literally a rubber duck so you're saying it's a holodeck room <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh no exactly <laughs> but okay i like that idea I, that's that's becoming my head cannon look but okay now we, we're getting into canon inconsistencies because on um I don't i don't think we are <laughs> On the Monavine MSD, the horses are literally horses. Right. Which means that there's literally a dragon on the Monavine, and which means yeah, there's literally they're, a rubber duck. They're dog. cosplayers who come from a planet where they pretend to be Renfest. They're Renaissance <laughs> people. And the planet has dragons on it. The dragon is clearly just one of the dragons from their planet. The horses are clearly the horses they take with them okay. when they go to other planets for their entourage. Come on, man. Like, use, use common sense here, buddy. Obviously. I mean, this all makes sense if you think about well, it for no, two it, seconds. It doesn't. I mean, Stavros, I mean, all the... All... <laughs> All, all the MSD is, it's a graph, graphical map, right? And so, like, okay, yes. So, you don't, you know, if you look at a map of a mall or or a theme park, right? Like, everything, yeah. there are icons of things like a restroom yeah. or, or a, a turkey leg stand, but like, right. there's not actually a giant turkey leg sticking out of the <laughs> ground, you know? Like, what? how dare you? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying there's not a 30 foot tall turkey lake at Disneyland somewhere? No, and there's okay. not a there's not a giant rubber ducky in the Enterprise B. <laughs> the icon that they so, used. I'm just dying here that I didn't realize this entire time Stavros thought there was literally a room with a giant rubber duck in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because because in TNG you, you really... can't backpedal, buddy. It's out. <laughs> oh, no, people, no. no. 
you know what? I could explain this, but screw you guys. So let's move on to the next topic. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, I'll, I'll explain it for you. No, in TNG. Okay. The, it looks the... like it's now Lower Dorks with Aaron and Thomas. <laughs> it's Lower, do- lower Ducks. <laughs> lower Ducks. Lower Ducks, yes. The best ducking podcast. Oh, God. The best ducking oh, Star Trek God. podcast. Make it happen. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen. Uh, no, everything's everything's fine. You know what? Let's just move on. Sadly, I already finished my uh, my sex on the beach, but we're going to talk about cetacean ops anyway. <laughs> um, so cetacean ops, we've heard about this this room in in previous shows and whatnot, and even in, in this show, and we actually get to see it this season. Hilariously, it is filled with two beluga whales that outrank the main cast <laughs> and, and Harry Kim, and they seem they seem like preoccupied with with sexy time with Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because that's actually a callback to earlier in the season. I completely missed it. Really? What is it's it? Like, yeah, it's in like the first episode where he's hanging out with uh, the uh, Trill chick. Oh yes, and they and mentioned like, we're gonna hang out in Station Ops. Yeah, they're gonna yeah. Go hang out and go for a swim in Station Ops. <laughs> and like after that, they're all over Rutherford. Yeah, you're totally right. But let's talk about this room. I mean, so so first of all, what the hell is this room for? All right, they Mariner says that it's I don't know something something navigation when they're like running in there. Well, that was the original idea, wasn't it? Like, Tatians, they live underwater in a, like, neutrally buoyant environment. Okay. So they already think three-dimensionally. Right. So obviously they've got one up on Khan, who's <laughs> yeah. the, you know, smartest man in the universe. <laughs> so that's, so is that what this is? Like, the belugas are like, yeah, it's like, plot of course, and, you know, underwater, <laughs> and, like, they, they, like, pipe their information up to Khan. Never made much sense <laughs> to me. Uh, what do you think, Thomas? I mean... Was this like the holy grail of Starship design where you're like, yes, Cetacean Ops? I mean, we, we've, I'm actually disappointed that they did it before. We, you know, we've wanted to put Cetacean <laughs> Ops in Star Trek Online uh, okay. for a long time. Actually, so, um, just do it better. This one was kind of weak. It was just like a round. <laughs> well, deep pool. I, I gotta say, so the original, <laughs> so people might not know that that uh, Cryptic Studios wasn't the original developer for Star Trek Online. That was uh, a developer named Perpetual Studios, and their version of Star Trek Online was uh, a lot envisioned a lot different than, than what we ended up doing. But they actually early in their development process, they actually hired uh, Andy Probert to do some concept art for them because they were gonna really really flesh out the galaxy clock ship they were actually going to turn the galaxy class into a social hub and so so they hired andy probert to do these amazing concept drawings of areas of the enterprise d that we never got to see and since it's for a video game he could go hog wild with it right so right he designed a more expansive like six sick bay hospital complex like it's not just crusher's office it's like this whole right everything word yeah. yeah and then he did the computer core which is like five stories tall <laughs> and has these little yes. like floating chairs yeah. where you could go up yeah. and down but i remember the that concept art it was yeah. just beautiful so much yeah. of his design and uh and actually the first the very first thing i did when i got hired at cryptic was i sniffed around on the um share drive and found all his concept <laughs> art and just spent like the whole day looking send at send them lost, to me <laughs> lost concept <laughs> art for snow <laughs> A lot of it, it made Amazing. it online anyway. Um, but I said all that as a setup for, and one of the rooms he did was Cetacean Ops. So there are a lot, a lot of Andy Probert drawings of what he imagined Cetacean Ops yeah. looking like on the Enterprise D. Right. 
And the actually, ones I remember, it was much more like a uh, like an aquarium. Like sea World. It was. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was very much like yeah. There were walls and like people were walking around and they could see the dolphins. It was almost right. like uh, I've actually been watching SeaQuest lately. Oh my god, Ooh, such a yeah. great show. Kind of. Yeah, I love <laughs> I love SeaQuest. And uh, and you know, in SeaQuest, there are these little. There's a room. There's like a pool where they can talk to the dolphin. But then there are these tubes throughout the ship where the the dolphin can swim by and that that's kind of what the probert citation ops was so i i always wanted to do probert's version for star trek online if we ever had the opportunity uh, or reason to do it and we haven't yet so I, i'm glad that it made it into you know into the into the show and into the canon finally to, to see the inside of it but uh i do recommend anybody that has access to the tng tech manual there is a there is a, a couple pages about cetacean ops and what it's for and yeah the gist of it is that uh the cetacean crew members can think more easily in three dimensions and i think there's some like they're they're also kind of experimenting you know there for behavioral experiments and i get the implication in in that in the TNG tech manual that they're working with like sentient crew members that can communicate. And, you know, we, uh, I mean, we see that now that lower decks kind of leans into that, but also with Zindi aquatics, like cetacean ops could also just be there for, we have aquatic aliens that need a place to live on our spaceship and they're in Starfleet. So right. that's sort of what cetacean ops is for. It could be as simple no, as that. I think yeah. it, was, it was Voyager that actually was like the first one to really deal with that. Where like, I think there's an episode early on where they mentioned that we have X number of crew members and we have X number of different biologies that have different needs. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge problem when you're stranded the so right. far from home. Right. I thought that was, that was really cool to show like the consequence of like what it takes to run a truly multi-species starship. Yeah, and the the Titan books lean into that a lot too, because they they yeah. um that was one of the big things that they wanted to emphasize for those books was just like we want the most like crazy aliens, you know, the most diverse Starfleet crew we can get. And so there's like a the Doctor is like a essentially a raptor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's like a like dinosaur. A dinosaur. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and there was a really funny passage in, in the one that I read that was like people were like nervous when he was around babies. <laughs> they thought <laughs> that he was like going to eat their baby or something. <laughs> oh man, amazing! <laughs> but instead, in, in this show, we get uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade Belugas that uh, I give terrible medical advice and seem to have prioritization issues. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of disappointed. I wanted Cetacean Ops to be the thing that always got referenced, but like you never saw. <laughs> yeah, he got to veto there. That scene was definitely hilarious. Can't really complain yeah. too much. Also, strangely, the like emergency deck plating release was down the water pipe. Like what? And and it's like the same design as all the others. So the <laughs> Belugas couldn't use it, and you're like, why would you design it that way? <laughs> Shouldn't you make flipper uh, yeah. compatible L cars down there? Or something? At least, yeah. I mean, at least they Awkward. had. I mean, at least like Boimler kept his suit on when he jumped in. You know, like <laughs> that's true. Because <laughs> I feel like there must have been a temptation for him for the writers to have him like, oh, then he, then he takes off his suit to go swimming. It's like, but it's a spacesuit. Like, why wouldn't he just? Yeah. Keep it on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
That's funny. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, the only other thing I want to point out on the Cerritos is we actually see the captain's yacht, which I think we've only ever seen in uh, Insurrection, I want to say. It, just a quick, quick shots of it. And overall, it seems to be pretty consistent with what we saw in Insurrection. Kind of neat that the California class ships, despite being the workhorse class, also has a captain's yacht for some reason. Voyager had an aero shuttle. Right. Uh, the Galaxy and the Sovereign had captain's yachts. I always got the feeling that, like, after you reached a certain size, it was just like the captain's yacht was standard. Mm. And there was, like, some design function for it that's never really specifically spelled out in the series. Yeah, do you have any opinions on that, uh, Thomas? Like, yeah, I wonder um, I wonder if it's in the standard place where it is on the Voyager Enterprise D and the Enterprise E, mm. if it's at the bottom of the saucer. I mean, it, what's interesting about this version of the Captain's Yacht is how much of it is inside. Yeah, because it's usually like glommed onto the bottom and like right. you can see the outline, but it's very much a part of the hull. Right. Whereas this looks like it's in a bay. Right, exactly. And there's even like seats in the bay for some reason. <laughs> yeah, what's going on there? <laughs> they're waiting for the, it's like it's like the uh waiting line for star tours like who's going next on the captain's yacht <laughs> well, i'm kind of thinking this may be like on the cerritos it's designed for like dignitary transport right oh okay it's like a literal it's like more of a yacht a yeah yacht. so like you're you know transporting other like influential people and in, mm. you know whatever world you've gone to to engage in whatever you know high concept sci-fi rigmarole is happening this week <laughs> <laughs> yeah that could be it all right yeah yeah there's some there's some cool video so uh andy probert did a painting for the ship of the line calendar uh some years ago where it shows the enterprise d either launching or recovering the captain's yacht which was so just google ship of the line captain's yacht and you'll probably find it i've never seen and that one you can see the top of it which is really cool neat and then somebody else did a test there's like a test render of the aero shuttle being launched on Voyager. And then there's also a video that somebody did of the Enterprise E captain's yacht being launched, but from the inside, which oh. is also really cool. Yeah. So uh, that one I yeah, have seen. It's, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. It's a cool, you know, it's an interesting concept. And I, it's one of those things that you kind of, you, you kind of know when, when the people writing are super steeped into the lore the the fact that this episode mentions captain's yachts and cetacean ops is just kind of like boggles my mind you know what i mean because i because i feel like you know there are a lot of times in in tng or voyager or whatever where it's like oh if they had remembered that this captain yacht was there they might have written the episode a little differently well you know and i think mean? i think it's one of those things that uh it's the whole uh tos problem of you know they didn't have the budget to do it yeah and their workaround created this whole other logical inconsistency that they then later would have to deal with so they just like you know what if we reference this, it causes this problem in this episode, in this episode, in this episode. You know what? <laughs> Who's going to forget it's there? Screw it. <laughs> had this great idea, but nope. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, that I mean, that's all about the Cerritos. And one actually ship I wanted to briefly mention, but it got it got killed out of my notes for some reason that I'm going to talk now about at the end. Just to, it's kind of an afterthought. Is back in the episode, Keishana's Eyes Open. Yeah, the collectors. Yes, the collector ship. It is this uh, kind of goofy looking um, 
ship that's kind of this hodgepodge of cylinders and pipes going everywhere um what what in god's name is going on with this ship like all you all you see is this establishing shot with it and you can tell from the episode itself that the vast majority of the inside of the ship is collector museums yeah right but dear god like what i mean where's the engine call back to your previously talking about the expanse yeah there's references and i i think they're in the show too but in the books they talk about how a spaceship is just a box with an engine on it right <laughs> yes and when you're in like star trek level technology like what's the tensile strength of the materials you're using yeah can you do with a structural integrity field i've, I've always kind of wanted to see like ships that are just you know bolted together junk you don't see that too often <laughs> i feel like that's gotta be a thing unless like warp drive is super stressful you need a really strong space frame to hold your ship together but i don't think we've ever seen any evidence for that yeah i mean you could make the argument that borg ships are just a bunch of junk bolted together it's just a lot of densely bolted together junk yeah yeah that's true but i was thinking <laughs> more true. of like very obviously just stuff bolted on like right you know actually no we do see that in enterprise again we keep referencing it the, sh- the series that is but the uh <laughs> the arctic uh, research vessel that the Borg mm. take over. Mm. They just bolt stuff onto the outside as they continue to expand technologically. So you think that's what's happening here? Like there's just not a lot of thought given to the exterior of the ship? And... I don't think so. Did we see that ship move? Because I, I just sort of... No. Is it a station? I just sort of assumed it was a, a space station. I think they call it a ship. Yeah, pretty, I want to say they call it a ship. Do call well, there there is a little shuttle craft in a sh- in the shot that I'm looking at with the Cerritos. And yes. The... Well, that's that the, is the, the collector the collector guys functionary yeah. guy. Yeah. So it could be an ancillary craft for that ship. I... Like I'm seeing like so like looking at this, you see like there's the blue glow that to me indicates like some sort of deflector. There's the yeah. red glow that to me is either a Bussard collector or, you know, some type of thrusters or something. There's no, there's no like warp engines that I can tell. So I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to say. When's this ship coming to STO? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not, not I mean, high on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, what a, what a, a weird tubes and pipes going all over the place yeah. just doesn't work for me. Strange wild card ship like somebody was like you know what we're doing it i like the idea of the various components connected together by tubes and pipes and wires (laughs) that to me could have been a really cool aesthetic like here it's just such a hodgepodge it just there's like no logical sense to this thing yeah very confusing uh one thing that is cool i think it's worth mentioning uh in that episode though is that because some of it's set on the titan we do get to see more of the inside like we see the transporter room in the titan yeah right yeah we saw a little bit of the bridge of the Titan in the um, in season one, but at the end of season one, but we get to see more of it here, you know, and I think that's cool too. I totally yeah. forgot about all the Titan interiors. It's got to be right the tra- the transport the transporter's got to be right next to the bridge because Riker's like right effing there. He just runs in, get get Boiler out of there. But, you know, definitely cool. See, to see the conference that. room too. Oh, we see uh, Riker's office. Like, man, now that I'm thinking about that, we should have done a whole segment on just the Titan. <laughs> We still can't. Well, way, Riker, way to drop the ball, director. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. But you know, it's funny. Speaking of the Titan, Riker's got some. Uh, this is the first time we've seen a Captain Riker ready room. And I, as I recall, there's like a, a like a record on the wall, and of course the trombone and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean um, that's his whole thing. I mean, we know the trombone isn't his original because that was in the collector's collection. <laughs> was it in there? <laughs> yeah, you didn't notice that. it. 
No. Hey, it's got a trombone. There's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> the man can re- replicate a trombone whenever he wants. Yeah, probably. They do like, I mean, the, the interiors of the Titan were clearly influenced by the Enterprise E, right? Which I think is yes. cool. Yeah. The Titan, so it's interesting, the, so the Luna class and the Saber class and the Akira class, and I guess the Norway class, all seem to be of an era. Like, you know, they're kind of interstitial between the 23, early 2360s Galaxy class, and they're not quite like Sovereign level yet, but... Um, right. It's it's cool to see that that progression, and it's cool that they did that on the interior work of the the, the Titan too. I would love 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 to see the Titan come to life in a live action show someday. Like it would be really cool to see that. Yeah, I just I don't know. Like I, I've mentioned this before, but like Riker in Lower Decks is very animated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's true. he has this like very bombastic presence. I'm not sure, like, Jonathan Frakes could, like, pull that off in, like, a live-action series on a regular basis. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't think that, I, I don't even think that, yeah, I think Mike McMahon has been on record saying that they know that they're, they know they're pushing it with him, and that, like, their version of Riker, they wouldn't expect, if, if there was ever a live-action Titan show, they wouldn't expect him to act exactly the same no, way. No, not at all. But I, I do think, though, that he would be, like, much more than Picard was, a very, like, dynamic and charismatic character. Totally. Like, the kind yeah. of person who, unlike Picard, where, like, his crew, they all respected him and thought highly of him as the father figure, I would see Riker much more as the captain that, like, the people rally around as this other in arms more so right yeah totally one day maybe and you know we're reaching that point where you know they can do enough with voices and cg that maybe we'll get that like cg star trek series that you know spans the ages you know (laughs) i mean they just dye his hair a little bit he's not you know he looks okay like you know they could do a pull it off they can do the deep (laughs) oh no (laughs) yeah that is true they do the digital de-aging now too yeah that's right Spiner's already done it. I do wonder, though, about how his mobility is, because, you know, that was the whole story of, like, why he was, like, the cool guy in TNG that, like, he sat in chairs weird and he was always leaning. <laughs> and it's all like, ah. Because he's so tall. Oh, no, he had back problems. problems. So, like, yeah. he couldn't do the, like, proper, like, twisting to get into chairs. And all the chairs had these low backs. So he just raised his leg over the back of the chair. Right over him. <laughs> You know, we've gone. This episode has gone from ships to the Riker uh. universe. So <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I feel like we're, we maybe. I think we've discussed all the ships that we are are fit to ship in the, in season yeah. two. Are, are we missing anything? Do you guys want to mention anything else? I think we've covered just. About I, I feel everything. kind of like we we've dove a little too deep into our cups at this point. <laughs> <laughs> My socks on the beach is. Uh, is a, too, a little too sandy it's it's all gone so i suppose in that case i gotta Yikes. say uh thank you once again thomas for joining us yes absolutely we hope thank you'll you for come joining. back again sometime in the future yeah i mean i'm sure there'll be all sorts of new ships to talk about next season can't wait to see what they are uh yeah this is a lot of fun thanks for having me thanks for letting me talk for 30 minutes about 1970s star trek <laughs> rpgs totally it's a great uh, non-sequitur to have so <laughs> but uh you know what uh, that being said i suppose that uh, it's time we turned off the warp core for the evening uh, you'll be able to catch us again in the not too distant future when we once again lie about our brief hiatus between seasons <laughs> <laughs> if that's not soon enough you can catch us on twitter at lower dorks 
Or failing that, pick up your local FASA RPG book, <laughs> turn to page 269, and in tiny letters. Find Starburst's home address. He'd love to see it. <laughs> wow. Is that true? Now I have to go find a copy. They are from the future, so clearly... Oh, that's true. Somebody in the future wanted people to know where you live. Thanks, future guy. <laughs> well, you know, future guy was actually Archer all along, right? <laughs> oh shit. Well, I don't. I don't actually mind that theory. <laughs> all right, I'm going to stop the recording there, or we can keep going. And-